Welcome back everyone to Just James Horror Reviews. I'm your host, Just James, and this is episode number 11. Today we're going to be talking about number two in our three-part Blair Witch series. This is going to be Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. It's a 2000 film, and it was made a year, I believe a year after the first film. Now this film is, it's not the found footage documentary style that the first film introduced to everyone. This is more of a straightforward horror film. It's very stylized in the way that Scream was produced as far as the way it looks, you know, on film, the way it looks on the screen, the way it plays out, the characters. It is dripping with that late 90s, early 2000s uh, nostalgia just as far as the the characters and the content and it's it's not really a slasher film but it kind of plays out like a slasher film as far as finding bodies here and there and trying to figure out who the killer is that kind of uh, direction that it goes but we'll get into that as we go through the film so I'll start off by saying I like this film as well I like all three of the Blair Witch films there's some people that are disenchanted with the uh, the trilogy and how it all played out but for me, maybe it's just because it's nostalgic for me, but I enjoyed all three films. I like this film as well. You know, was it a good second edition? You know, sequels always are kind of hit or miss, but this one for me was uh, a win because it wasn't trying to be the first film. It wasn't trying to be like, oh, found footage, but now we found more footage that wasn't in the first film, and, and that it, it wasn't trying to... Uh, it did piggyback off the success, but not off the model of the first film. So, Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. It was directed by Joe Berlinger. Now, Joe Berlinger, he is actually in this film at the very beginning as a Burkittsville tourist number one is how he's credited. But you'll see him on there. He's one of the first um, interviews that they do. This guy has produced a ton of actual documentaries and a lot of crime documentaries, uh, a lot of things that involve the justice system, serial killers, he even did one on Epstein and Metallica, just a lot of true crime stuff. And I think that shows a lot in how this movie plays out. There's a lot of information out there about how he kind of disagreed with how the, the, the movie company and all that wanted the direction of the film to go. They changed some stuff that he had had in there originally, but they wanted to make it more commercial and marketable and of course that's always the game you play when it comes to horror films because at the end of the day they want to make money off of a film they're trying to really you know grab that burning star that was the first film and make as much money as they can so for the director you know they're wanting to they have a vision they have something in their mind of how they want this to play out but some things just don't come out the way they want it to because they feel it's not as marketable which is always the uh, the bottom line when it comes to your main line feature films uh, the writers of this are, are Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez and you'll recognize them as the guys from the first film so I do like that they were involved in the second one even though it wasn't they weren't the the main director they were still involved they did add a third writer by the name of Dick Beebe who also worked on House on Haunted Hill the the remake uh, around the same time and he's also credited for some screenplays on the old tales from the crypt well not that old at the time but old now some old tales from the crypt screenplays 
So already we have a lot of people involved in this film who have done a lot of successful things already. And I think that helped with the success of this film, even though it was heavily driven by monetary, you know, uh, pursuits and all that. So some stars that you're going to recognize in this film. If you've seen it, you already know who I'm talking about. If you haven't, there's going to be uh, Erica Learson. She was in a 2009 Texas Chainsaw Massacre film, uh, which was also a, a remake that was that was pretty good. I, there was things I liked, things I didn't like about it. Maybe I'll review that one later on, but it it was uh it was cool. I think that's the one with Jessica Biel in it. Could be wrong. She was in Wrong Turn too, and she was in an episode of The Ghost Whisperer. You know what the Ghost Whisperer is. You know you've seen some episodes, and I know why you saw them. Anyway, Ghost Whisperer. She was in a couple of those episodes, and um, another, the most recognizable face in there, I think, at the time, would be Jeffrey Donovan. He was in that show, Burn Notice, that was out, uh, I think, quite a bit after this film. I can't remember. I never watched the series, but it was a TV series that was on for a while. He also was in the movies that came out not that long ago, Sicario, if you saw that. It's kind of an action, government, contract killer kind of film, if you haven't seen it. It's it's okay. It's worth watching. It's not the best movie, but he's in that. But let me tell you what movies he was in that really stood out for me. So he was in a 1996 film called Sleepers. Now, if you haven't seen this film or you have no idea what I'm talking about, go watch that film first before you watch this one. Not that it has anything to do with it. It's just a way better film. It's not horror. It's more of a crime drama uh, film, but it's very cool. I'm not going to go into it, but it's called Sleepers. It had, like I said, 1996, Brad Pitt, Robert De Niro, Kevin Bacon. It's it's just a really good film, good drama, and it just has you, you know, your nerves going up until the very end. So check that movie out. Really, really good film. Another film he was in, Changeling. Uh, the 2008 Changeling, not the horror movie The Changeling, but it's just called Changeling. It's got Angelina Jolie in it. Like I said, it came out back in 2008. It was, which I didn't know this at the time, directed by Clint Eastwood. So that's either going to make you want to watch it or not want to watch it, depending on how you feel about his films. But one thing you do know about his films is they're they're very heavily dramatic and uh, very intense as far as bringing drama and emotions and all that to the forefront. So Changeling, 2008, Angelina Jolie... It involves, uh, it's based on an actual case that happened, I believe, about some kids that were kidnapped and killed by this serial killer guy, something like that. And um, that's back when they would institutionalize your spouse. So these women were being institutionalized just for, you know, this is a harsh generalization, but just institutionalized for disagreeing with their husbands. If your husband was some kind of powerful man, they would do something or say something to get you institutionalized to where you'd be put in some kind of crazy house, drugs, sedated, and, you know, uh, basically imprisoned in this place. So uh, the the premise of this film is her child is kidnapped and someone that's running for office or something like that doesn't want this kind of bad press because they can't find the kid. So they give her someone, I guess, someone else's kid. And then they try to convince her that that's her child and tell her she's crazy because it's not it's a good film. It's not as good as Sleepers, but and Changeling is super slow. But if you want some real good drama, um, it's it's a good film. But the reason that uh, Changeling sticks out to me is there is a hanging scene 
and I, I won't say much more about that in case you want to watch it. I don't want to spoil anything, but it is the most emotional and just uh, tense, hanging, execution-type scene that I have ever seen. The guy that plays the character um, that's executed in that way, he does such a good job. It's so crazy, and at that point in the film, all these emotions, you're just you're just like erupting with these emotions because you're sharing all this with the people on the screen and what they've been going through and this this you know super huge climb up to this major climax of the film and oh man just if you don't want to see the movie you don't want to watch this big long movie that's super dramatic just look up changeling hanging scene and this dude i i didn't look up any of his films but great great acting so anyway i've beat that to death the next person in there is Kim D- Director, is her name, Kim Director, and she plays the goth chick in this film. We'll get into that later. So, I watched this film on Pluto TV again, just like the first one. Pluto TV was offering it for free. I have Amazon Prime, but of course, when I click on it, it says, unable to play this in your area right now, whatever in the hell that means. So, I had to go to Pluto TV. Amazon, I know you're not listening. Maybe you are. If you are, what the hell is up with that? Why are you making me go to Pluto TV and give them my business when I pay for your service? Anyway, that's besides the point. So, Blair Witch 2, let's get started. The movie starts out, and you're going to see this director, this Joe Berlinger guy's style throughout the whole movie, because you have to understand, if you don't know much about these movies, when the first movie came out, there was a a short documentary after the movie came out that further legitimized the first one. So people were so confused. Even today, if you were, to, I'm going to tell you right now that this story is fake. There is no Blair Witch. There's no such lore. There's no such thing that ever happened. There's no whatever. But if you Google it, I promise you, you're going to find actual news articles. You're going to find real crime drama things that were made about it and all this stuff. It's all, it's bullshit. Okay, it's all fake. It's all made for the movie. Now, this was kind of the first of its kind with this internet campaign that people do to hype movies up. And the internet was, I mean, it wasn't new, but it was new as far as using it in this manner. And so it's it's meta on top of meta on top of meta because you're watching it. And there's even a, uh, a, a, a little reading at the front of it that says, you know, this is a fictional representation of something that happened. And it's based off of police reports and interviews and all this stuff. No, it wasn't. But you don't know that. And if you were back in the hysteria of all this, you're so confused because they're they're showing you interviews. Everything looks realistic. Why does it look realistic? Because this guy, this this Berlinger guy, he was a documentary filmmaker. So he knew exactly how to play all this stuff and make it look as real as possible. Where he had done crime, uh, true crime and all that, he knew exactly what these interviews looked like, what they felt like, the whole feel. And it really, 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 to me legitimized the uh, this whole film for me you know so you're watching it it opens up with a couple of news reels some old MTV news it's got Jay Leno on there talking about it Conan O'Brien and they're all talking about the Blair Witch so all these opening scenes are the town where the original film uh, took place and it's all the townsfolk saying you know they're their town is getting flooded now by fans of the first film, and it's become kind of a hot spot. Their little town's been, you know, just filled with all these people who are coming to try to find the Blair Witch, even though it's not true. And one person even says that, she says, you know, she feels like 
it's uh, they did wrong by putting on their website that this was a, a a documentary. She's like, you know, it was false for them to call it a documentary. It deceived people. Now everyone thinks that this is real. So, you know, some town people are against it. Others, they're for it because they're profiting off of it. So they're making little Blair Witch stick figures. They're selling stacks of rocks and they're doing all this stuff. And they're actually starting to profit off this. And this is where we meet our main character as he's one of these people that has been collecting rocks and sticks and everything out of the woods where the Blair Witch was supposed to be. And he's creating stick people and selling them online. He sells t-shirts and all kinds of other stuff. And as we go through the movie, it's going to flash back to these scenes that are in the future. But you, I guess you don't know that at the time, but you know, it flashes to like police interviews with the main cast and it, it doesn't really make sense now, but it will as we go through it. So you start talking to this guy. He says, he mentions something, does a little foreshadowing where he talks about how he was in the hospital when the first film was out. We later find out that that was a mental institution. This is going to come into play later. And yeah, so they go on, they do all these interviews and it cuts to a scene to where he's in a van that says Blair Witch Hunters and he's giving a tour to these people. You can tell that there's like two document uh, documentary filmmakers there's a, a Wiccan, uh, a girl who's Wiccan, and then there's this goth character, and then him, and they're all in the vehicle together. They're all very typecasted personalities and people, which is very much with how other movies... I mean, you think about Scream, and I Know What You Did Last Summer, and all that. Everyone wants to see that very Scooby-Doo type typecasting in these films. You know, we need our jocks, we need our smart people, we need our stupid people, we need our really eccentric, wild, out-there people, our lovers, our fighters, and all that. So this is done um, very intentionally in this movie. So they're all in the van. They're talking about where they're going. They find out that this guy that's taking them, who's the dude from the mental hospital, however, they don't know that at the time, that this is his very first tour. And they're kind of like, you know, what the hell? You said you've done this a whole bunch. And you know, he's, he hasn't. And then it cuts to the title card, which is this really sweet soaring shot of these woods um, and all these, you know, valleys and, and stuff like that, of this forest of where they're going to be. And it's playing some really cool new metal because, like I said, it's the early 2000. It, it is 2000. And so new metal, it's just it's so nostalgic. So if you, you know, were a, a teenager or whatever back then, you hear this, you start hearing these Marilyn Manson songs and this Power Man 5000 type stuff. Oh, it just takes you right back. Like I said, all these characters and everything, it's just, it's so cool. It is so cool. So, yeah, they're in the van. They go out, and right off the bat, this this movie takes no time uh, getting started. There's not a lot of setup other than just those uh, pre-interview things that they're doing where they're talking to townsfolk, they're in the van, they go out to the woods, and the... The crazy guy takes him out to uh, the the house where the murders took place. So this is the, the only thing that's left is the foundation. This is where they found the original footage, where the original people were from the first film, um, where they were murdered at, and it's also where the seven children were killed at in the first film. So if you remember uh, Rustin Parr, that was the guy's name, Rustin Parr's house. So... He takes him there, and he's got all this camera equipment, which kind of... The only reason it makes sense is because of the first film, but this dude just got out of a mental hospital and sells stick figures, but yet he's got thousands of dollars worth of 
filming equipment and tripods and all these big suitcases full of stuff. And, you know, he's telling them like, Hey, I'm hoping to find a, you know, to, to get an actual sighting of the witch or some type of crazy activity, you know, that I can sell and make money off of. So they're at Rustin Parr's house and weird shit starts right off the bat. Okay. So as they're setting stuff up, he turns around and there's this big ass tree growing out of the middle of it. And he's like, Oh my gosh. He's like, you know, what's the deal with this big ass tree? Well, they think this is all part of the tour. He's just trying to mess with them. So they're like, hey, you know, that's really corny. You should drop that act, you know, for your next thing. We're not falling for it. And then he says, okay, if this tree was, I mean, if this house was built, you know, however long ago, let's just say 50 years ago, why would they build a house around a tree? You know, if this tree looks like it's 50 years old, why would they build a a house around this tree? Which totally makes sense. You get sold on it. And then right then and there, you get hit the heebie-jeebies, those witchy heebie-jeebies. You're like, oh man, this is, why is there a tree there? I don't know. So they talk about it, they acknowledge it, and then they just kind of blow past it. Well, right away, they start um, drinking, smoking weed, partying a little bit. They decide they're just going to stay there for the night, see if anything, you know, witchy happens. And this is where you start to be introduced to the characters. Now, we find out a couple of things. We find out that the goth character is I guess clairvoyant is that is that the term for it she can just see things and she just knows things without she she just happened just like some kind of intuition where she just knows something she knows things so like she tells one of the 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 uh, the documentary team people is a uh, their girlfriend and boyfriend or husband wife I can't remember he goes up to the she goes up to the woman and tells her that she's pregnant and, you know, of course, it's weird. She's like, how do you know that and all that? So so we have this clairvoyant who's going to notice weird things that are happening. And when the tree comes up, she's looking at it very suspicious with the other guy who knows, who lives there, that understands that, that tree is not supposed to be there. And again, that adds to the whole, you know, building this base layer of un where you're just uneasy. You can't trust what you see. You can't trust what you hear, just like in the first film. So right off the bat, we're... We're being lied, you know, really we're being lied to the whole thing. You know, it's, is it a documentary? Is this something that really happened? Were these real events? No, they weren't, but they feel like they are. They've been legitimized by all this stuff online. And now again, the film starts out the same way with showing you something and then telling you that it's not real or it's not supposed to be there. So this theme just snakes in and out of all this stuff, man. It's just, that's why to me, it makes it such a good movie. So it's just that uneasiness, that psychological horror so that's our goth character of course we already have the guy from the mental hospital we have the two people the filmmakers and their whole i guess deal with this is she's a believer in the witch and what happens and the guy is supposed to be more this practical uh, collegiate type who wants who says hey this is all just mass hysteria and he wants to study it from an academic point of view and he's the skeptic so the other one the other character is they, she's very, uh, I guess, over the top. Like she's Wiccan, but the character is very over the top with the wickedness and the dress and the stuff and, and the whoever wrote her, her lines and stuff. It's it's kind of corny, but she goes over the top and lets you know that she's Wiccan very early on, and she goes on about how witches are misunderstood. And she's when they get to the house, she's doing all these uh, like seance things on the ground, you know, to try to say, hey. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to bring out the good energy, not the negative. And she tells 
one of them that she's trying to talk to Ellie Kedward, who is the Blair Witch. Now, maybe they said that name in the first film, but I don't remember it. I don't remember them ever mentioning that her name was Ellie Kedward. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was in that weird short documentary that they made after the first one. I don't know. So, Ellie. That's who she said that she's going to try to talk to. So, uh, it kind of makes some of them uneasy. They get back to partying. And in this party scene, again, it's playing this cool, like, new metal. It's showing them, you know, smoking and drinking. And, again, this one girl's pregnant. And so, she's drinking heavily. And you find out that there's this thing between her and her fiance or husband or whoever that, you know, she doesn't want the baby. He does. And so he kind of starts, they kind of start having this disagreement while she's drinking and they're partying with all this stuff. And, uh, he's, that guy's trying to address the group about the mass hysteria. So this is when he starts talking to everyone about, Hey, this is how it gets started. This mass hysteria stuff, you know, that's all this is. And this is, it's very easy to do. You know, we've had all these things come out that have legitimized this. Again, they're talking about what's happening in the fictional world of this film, but also this is a call-out to what's been happening since the first film. And he brings up the the Bermuda Triangle and says that, you know, this is an example of this mass hysteria that can be believed on a global scale, where there's really nothing going on, but because people believe it, it's become this type of modern-day lore that exists and is real because everyone believes it. And they go into how... Uh, saying things like perception is reality, and if uh, people believe something, then isn't it real? And to me, I think, you know, they they didn't know what the world was going to look like in 2023, but I think this whole, what they're saying about things on film, the use of the internet, perception is reality, and if enough people believe it, isn't it true? And they talk about how the media is used to manipulate and get people to believe things. Rings, super true, um, in, you know, today's, uh, you know, media atmosphere. So I thought that was another thing. You can watch it today. And there's a lot of things that maybe back then didn't hit as hard as they do today. So yeah, just another cool little part of the film that makes me like it that much more. So they're partying, the new metals blasting, super nostalgic stuff going on. And then all of a sudden they hear a scream and you know, the music and everything's cut in the film and it's just silent. So they're listening. You hear the scream. It's kind of like what they heard in the woods on the first film when they were camping out the first night. And so, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, here we go. It's witch time. And what happens? You get your first jump scare of the film. A second tour group comes through. They get into an argument about who's supposed to be there. Trying to figure out how to get rid of this other tour group. And you can tell they have some people with them that are from out of town. One girl says, I didn't fly all the way from Berlin and not see anything. And the other two, you know, appear to be Asian and, uh, None of them speak English, but they're like pointing at their pamphlets and stuff, you know, trying to say, hey, we want to see something besides just some rocks and trees. So the goth girl comes up with this great idea and says, makes up a story about seeing something at Coffin Rock earlier in the day. And she's real freaked out. Everyone else tunes into what she's doing. So they're like, yeah, we're freaked out. You know, we just want to get out of here. We'll be gone in the morning. You guys go to Coffin Rock and check it out. You know, let us stay here. We've already got all of our tents and equipment set up. And we'll be out of here first thing in the morning. You guys can come and just have the whole thing to yourself. So everyone agrees with that. Tour group goes on. They get back to partying hard. And, you know, we fade to black. It fades to black. There's a couple of cut scenes there. Some, you know, weird stuff. You don't really make sense at the time. And they wake up. And there's this... It, it's a really good scene of them waking up. 
and there's this white just stuff. You know, it, it's, it ends up being shredded paper, but you don't know that at the time. And it's just raining down, very slow, very dreamy-like all around them. It's covering them. It's covered the campsite. Everyone's waking up all groggy, just not knowing what happened. You know, no one can remember the night before. And so they wake up and they're like, what, you know, what in the fuck is all this stuff? So they find out it's all of the filmmaker people's research. It's all their paperwork. It's all the stuff they brought with them and it's scattered everywhere. And then, uh, the guy that's got all the camera equipment, all his stuff is just smashed to pieces. Well, they're freaking out. They don't understand what's happened. They're trying to figure out who did it. Their first thought is the tour group came back after they passed out and trashed their place for their trouble, you know? And the 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 girl who can see things that aren't there, the, the goth character, she says that your tapes are still here. And of course, everyone still looks at her, you know, kind of strange when she says stuff like this. Uh, Kim, that's her name. And she said, no, the tapes are here. They're where they found the old tapes. And so they go and they find the corner of the foundation where they found the old tapes. Everyone's like, yeah, whatever. Well, they go, and sure enough, they pull out all the tapes. Well, now everyone's like, how did you know that? Did you have something to do with this? What are you not telling us? So now all of a sudden we're starting to get back to the we're not trusting each other. Weird stuff's happening. Things we can't explain. We can't trust our eyes. We can't trust each other. Holy shit, what's happening? It's the witch. So they want to know all their equipment's being smashed up and... They think now that she's had something to do with it. Oh, and I forgot too. The this is where the one who was pregnant, she had a dream that night about walking out into the creek, and she I don't know if she like it, it's a weird scene, but anyway, it's some, got something to do with the baby. She like gives birth to the baby in the creek, and it's drowning in the creek, or she has a towel with her. I don't, I don't really know. There's blood. You you just have to see it. Anyway, the, the baby's dead in in her dream. So she wakes up. They see her. She looks really bad off, so they rush her to the hospital um, before they have time to really deal with all this, you know, stuff at the campsite. Rush her to the hospital. They say that she's looks like she's suffering from exposure. Um, and then, you know, what happens? Uh, she has a miscarriage, and she loses she loses the baby. And you can already tell at this point that she's starting to act a little strange, not like herself. You know, maybe she's got a little. Maybe she's got a little witchy witch in her. I don't know. We're going to find out. So they release from the hospital. They decide they're going to take all these tapes. The guy that runs the tour says, hey, we'll go back to my place. We'll watch all these tapes and we'll just see what happens. So why? I can't remember why exactly these people decide that that's a good idea instead of just being like, hey, screw this guy. This whole thing's a wash. Let's just get out of here. He's some random tour guide. But they end up going to his place. And now he lives in some kind of, I, I think it was like an old sawmill or an old factory or something like that he says i bought it from a buck they were trying to get rid of it and yeah that's where he lives he lives in some kind of you know factory or whatever so they go there and they decide to start watching these tapes let's figure out what in the world going on now as they do all this we're flashing back to scenes of some of them being interrogated by police we're flashing back to scenes of you know, someone getting stabbed in the stomach, somebody getting their head smashed in with a rock, all these like real quick, you know, two second clips of something violent or something, you know, bloody. And we don't know who's doing what or who these people are, where it's coming from, but they keep hitting us with it. And I think they also do this at the very beginning of the film. So you're already interested and it's not necessarily a a bloody film. I mean, there's not, you know, it's not like a slasher where you just see someone getting you know, beheaded or, or their 
face smashed in, but uh, it does start off with those flashes of violence to kind of, I guess these are the appetizers, you know, these are the teasers to kind of keep you guessing throughout the film. So they go back to this dude's place, and as they're there, they start hallucinating like crazy. Everyone, you know, when they go off on their own somewhere, they start seeing shit that's not there. They start seeing themselves do things that they're not doing. And uh, you see as they're watching the tapes, like you'll get a quick flash of something and it'll be an image on there that they kind of miss or they just think it's static on the screen. But you see some bodies kind of splayed out and someone's like, what, you know, what was that? What was that? And one of the guys notices, he said, it's Coffin Rock. And they said, how can you know that? He's like, I don't know. Just it looked like a bunch of, it looked like the scene from Coffin Rock with the bodies splayed out. Now, something they do in this film and... In the first film with Coffin Rock, it said that these people were bound by their hands and feet and made some kind of structure. I believe that's how it's stated in the first one. But in this one on Coffin Rock, they say all these people that were killed on Coffin Rock and disemboweled and all this, that their bodies were set out in the shape of a pentagram, which is how it's portrayed in this film as well. So they see this image. It looks like Coffin Rock. They're trying to figure out, you know, uh, what these weird staticky images are that keep popping up as they're reviewing the film. And finally, one of them notices that he had all these still cameras like on tripods that were watching the, the little foundation thing that they were sleeping in the house in uh, the Rustin Parr's house. So the, the big tree from the very beginning that we started with that was odd and not supposed to be there, someone notices that that tree is not there. They're like, well, where is it? Where is the tree? And when you look on the film, it's just this little tiny sapling. If you don't know what a sapling is, it's just like a tree that's like, you know, a couple years old. So it's like a stick, you know, it's a, it's six foot of skinny tree instead of 30 feet of really big old dead tree. And again, this is just where to me, it's my, it's my favorite parts. It's, it's things like this to where you can't believe your eyes anymore. You can't believe what's given to you on the screen. You can't believe what the characters are saying. It just adds to that psychological, you know, uh, tear that goes on throughout. So they, they see this, and, and this is also a part in the film, too, where I'm not going to sit here and say that there is not some really bad acting in this film, okay? I, I don't know what exactly it is. I, you know, really, I really think it's just the the writing. I don't think these people were bad actors by any means, but there's just some of these scenes, you know, where what they're saying and the conversations and how they're saying it, it just seems really, uh, not... Not as natural as it would be. It seems almost like a, like when you see a play, how you know each person's kind of waiting on their next line. Like, I say my line, and now you say your line, and now you say your line, and our emotions only happen when we're saying the line. So in between, you know, in, in between each line of the conversation, it's like they don't show any emotion until it's their turn to talk. And I think maybe for me, that's why some of the acting seems just a little, you know... I don't know. It's not great. It doesn't kill the film, but yeah, it's it's in there, okay? So everyone starts acting, uh, I guess, kind of weird towards each other as well. Like they'll have outbursts of anger or someone will get really frustrated with somebody for no reason. Again, they start hallucinating about different stuff. The one, the woman who had the miscarriage, she she's bedridden at this point. They go put her in the bed and they try to take care of her. As far as just like letting her rest while they try to figure out what's going on. While she's in there resting, I think the husband hears her screaming for him or something. He goes in there and she's asleep. And we find out that, that 
these characters are covered in these weird markings, which, and this is another funny part in the film. He's like the, uh, the documentary guy. He's like, Hey, uh, you know, I got this stuff on me too. And then the, the Wiccan, uh, character, she's like, I have it too. I think it's something we all picked up from the woods. It's just a rash. Now what's funny about this in the film is it is obviously the, the Blair Witch markings from the first film. It in no way looks like a rash. No one ever in their life ever has had a rash look like big, huge symbols on you and mistake it for poison oak or something that you would get in the woods. I don't care if you're from the woods or not, you would recognize that this, it looks like big, huge burnt scars into their skin. So that part was a little, you know, had a little cheese on it, but that's okay. And then the Wiccan girl says something where she's kind of freaking out and she's telling one of the other characters, yeah, but they're growing. And that's when Kim, the goth character, you know, she notices that hers are growing and they're all over her. And so they're trying to deal with this. Kim decides that she's had enough of this shit. She's going to go to the store and get some beer while they continue to watch the tapes and try to figure out what's going on. So she goes into town. And you have to remember in this film, this is supposed to be some kind of backwoods, hick, you know, redneck town. And um, when she goes to the gas station, she's verbally accosted by a couple of guys outside the store that talk shit to her about wearing all black and She's got on the real white makeup and the heavy eyeliner and all that kind of stuff. Looking great, if you ask me, but not the thing that they're into. So she handles them. She goes into the store, and the woman behind the counter doesn't want to sell her the alcohol. So she's being a real bitch, you know, towards her. And Kim basically tells her tells her off. Well, when she tells her off, the store manager tells her to get out of the store. There's a little altercation that takes place. It's over with, and Kim leaves the store with the beer. But something I never noticed, and I guess I wouldn't have noticed had I not watched these back-to-back. In the first film, uh, the Parsons guy who killed all those kids, he, it said when he came down into town, he went to a gas station, and he just said, I'm finished now. And that's all he said. Like, that was his confession, and they found all the bodies up there, whatever. Well, when she's in this gas station, she steps over this guy who's been working on the, you know, refrigeration uh part of the cooler or something like that and she looks down at him and he looks up at her and he says I'm finished now and he says it in a very weird you know sling blade kind of way but it's just very subtle and come to find out there's a whole bunch of easter eggs in this movie symbols everywhere and stuff that you can go on YouTube and look up videos where they're all you know highlighted and and talked about like I said this movie's older so it's been picked apart to death still one of my favorites though so anyway, she drives back, she's in this guy's van, and on the way back, uh, it's it's dark, it's nighttime still, and she's, uh, her back window gets busted out, and she thinks it's the guys from the gas station, like they're chasing her or whatever, you know, trying to run her out of town, and they're doing the whole, you know, generic, like, witch, you know, get this witch out of town, you know, it's very generic, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's kids all across the street, they're all wearing old period type clothing and there's seven of them so you know obviously it's the kids that the guy murdered she wrecks hits a tree so she's able to take the van back it up and take it back to jeff's house and she goes back to there and she says hey sorry you know i wrecked but she also tells him that i've seen these kids you know through her 
telepathic mind or whatever, and she's pretty sure it's the kids that were murdered. There's something really bad going on here. They've had a couple of different visions of people outside of the house at this point that say, you brought it back with you, and that part is crazy cheesy. But they're saying that you brought it back with you, you brought it back with you. So we know that whatever's in this house and messing with them, it's the witch or it has something to do with the witch or something to do with the woods. And, you know, like I said, we just keep seeing the kids at this point. And that's what's going on now. There is a part where the uh, the Wiccan character, they are able to like slow down one of the blurry images and they see someone swinging around that skinny tree in the middle of the foundation. And it's, I guess it's a callback to the, the Maypole, you know, Wiccan, Maypole, witches, whatever. And it's it's a nude woman. Well, when they freeze frame it, turns out it's her so everyone's in there asking her like you know so far this is the only person we see on the video and it's you and you're dancing around naked looking happy and they start accusing her of tearing up their stuff or what did you do you know what have you done but uh, what's a funny part to me about this scene is they're all sitting here kind of giving her this uh you know this third degree this interrogation but also while they're doing it it's just like a freeze frame image of her with you know frontal nudity from the waist up and she's you know trying to defend herself like hey i don't you know i don't know what you guys are talking about that's not me i don't remember doing any of that and again they're just sitting there getting frustrated with her and saying all this but this image of her you know breast is just on the screen so i'm I'm not a prude or anything as far as the the nudity goes but i just thought it was interesting i felt like these are all strangers right so if this was really happening you know i think she would be like hey would you mind getting my tits off the screen while we have this conversation? I don't know you people. I, I don't want you guys looking at me. So I thought that was a, I don't know, just a funny kind of how scenes play out. But it's a movie anyway. So, you know, things like that happen. We press on. She gets back to the house. And now all of a sudden, they cannot find the Wiccan girl. She's nowhere to be found. No one knows where she is. There's all kinds of weird stuff going on. They try to find her. And then they start accusing her of being the actual... Blair Witch, and that she's the reason all this stuff's happened, and now she's just disappeared. Well, Kim, the goth character, is not in on it. She says, hey, I don't think we need to keep, you know, thinking it's her or whatever. We just need to figure out where she's at. I'm worried she's in trouble. So they start tearing the house apart looking for her, and they find her clothing just laid out with her. Not, You know, it looks like she was just like, vaporized or something her clothes are just sitting there on the floor in front of these candles and all this stuff that she had laid out to do you know some type of like protection spell or something like that to keep evil away from them and uh yeah so she's gone and kim goes up to jeff and she's like hey we got to get out of here we need to call someone to come in and fix this because something is really wrong here i really feel like we brought something back there's something evil here is happening and we've got to get out of here before something bad happens well, while she's talking to him, it flashes to this picture. He's, he's sitting in a chair because he's you know, still reviewing the videos. And uh, she uh, she has this vision of him getting fried in the electric electric chair, which is probably one of the coolest scenes in the whole movie. If I had to pick out like top three, that's going to be one of them because it uses a, uh, a body, you know, makeup and effects and all that to show this dude being toasted in the electric chair. And it just looks it's it's done really well. It looks cool. Probably one of the better parts in the film as far as visual effects go. And then, finally, we get a little bit of... We, finally, we get some answers. And this is well over an hour into the movie when you know it's about to wrap up. You, instead of just like dragging you all over the place uh, psychologically and 
you know, showing you things that aren't real and things that aren't there. The sheriff, who is played by Lanny Flattery, who does a fantastic job of playing this small town sheriff, just watch it and tell me what you think of this guy. He like grits his teeth when he talks and he's very tall and he's got a ponytail and he wears cowboy boots. And uh, he does not like uh, the main character, Jeff, because he's part of why he ended up in the, the the institutionalized and all that. So he wants to get him back in there. We well, calls him up, tells him to turn on the news and look for him because it's a live broadcast. And this is when a whole bunch of other shit's going on. We won't get into it, but there's it's everything's coming to a head at this point. Turns on the TV and they're showing that the uh, that there's been murders at Coffin Rock. And you find out it's the tour group from the beginning, the ones that they told to piss off to Coffin Rock. And they've all been disemboweled. That picture of the body set out in a pentagram, that's what it is. So now they know shit's hit the fan. Now they know that something for real is going on. And also it's night. It, when they're hearing all this, it's night outside. But when they're watching the live broadcast, it's daylight. So I think that's another one of the cerebral twist you know that's going on with the film and once they know that this has happened the the original um the character that had lost the baby she comes out and she starts saying words backwards and saying the word backwards play it backwards everything backwards and then she starts speaking you know backwards i'm sure if you replayed that forward she'd actually be saying something but uh the uh kim decides that she's trying to say the it's the tape. Play the tapes backwards. Play the tapes backwards. Put in the codes backwards and play it. Well, when they do that, they find this footage that they had lost. They'd ended up losing like three and a half hours or something like that of the film. And when they play it backwards, it shows everything that happened. So it cuts to a scene of showing what happened. You see them doing all kinds of crazy. They, they're worshiping the girl that was doing all the Wiccan spells. And uh, also the the character that had lost the baby. They, they're... Uh, you can tell she's just she's uh she's the witch. She's the Blair Witch. They're all underneath her spell. They all get these knives and rocks and everything and they go out and they brutally, brutally, brutally murder the other tour group. I mean they, like they chop one guy's like dick off. Can I say that on here? They chop a guy's dick off. They do that, they smash some heads, they disembowel some people, and it's just uh it doesn't all show it explicitly, but you know, some of it's there. Just flashes of it are there as they're doing it. Lots of blood and all that. So they they finally realize that this is what's happened and that's what they've done. They have no memory of doing it. And again, they've already hallucinated a bunch of other stuff. So they're just trying to figure out, is this real? Is this something we actually did? Or is this just the witch messing with us? Well, since Tristan is the uh, the filmmaker, Tristan is the female's name. I don't think I've used her name to this whole thing. But Tristan, they decide that she's the witch. She's the one who's told them all this stuff. She's the one that's been acting weird. She's the one that's made them go places where nothing was there, you know, all these other hallucinations. She's been a part of them. So they decide that she's the witch. So they go to her, and they're trying to get her to confess. And this is... I, I know what they're trying to do here at the end. They're trying to, um, you know, make this scene seem very much like, uh, like the Salem witch trials, because they're all like, you know, confess, witch, confess. And she, the the... Tristan character ends up putting a noose around her neck and she's like, is this what you want? And she's very being very, she's telling them all they're going to die, being very confrontational with them. Obviously, she's under the possession of whatever the evil forces are. And they keep saying she's a witch and we got to do this and do that. And her fiance or boyfriend or whoever ends up, when she won't confess, pushes her off the edge and it's it's pretty dramatic scene. Pushes her off the edge. She falls off the noose around her neck and snap. 
Boom. Dead. Dead right there. Well, the sheriff has already told everyone to stay there because he's on the way. You kind of forget about that at this point. But that happens, and it cuts to kind of like these final scenes. It's That's pretty much the end of the movie. Cuts these final scenes, and uh, all these interviews they do with each character, and they play back these videos of each one of the murders. So uh, Tristan's murder, you see in the video that she's like begging for her life. She doesn't understand why everyone's you know, attacking her. And I mean, it's really kind of sickening, right? Because she just, you know, went to the hospital with exposure and a miscarriage and all this. And then you see her like begging for her life while all these people are calling her a witch and trying to kill her. But in their mind, it was what we saw when it happened. But on the film, you see what actually happened. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it kind of, it's just that uneasy feeling. Cause as you were watching it, you know, you're there along for the ride. You're, you're complicit in what's going on. And then you find out what actually happened. So it just kind of this, it's very nice how they put you in those people's shoes to make you feel just as guilty and just as sick when he finds out that he killed his fiance and how he did it by pushing her over the edge. And you find out that the character that that played the the Wiccan character, that she was murdered by Jeff. And yeah, that's it. They, you know, it just kind of gives you all these different things on film to show you. Oh, and Kim when she was talking to the person at the gas station lady wouldn't sell her alcohol, you find out she ends up murdering her too. Now you didn't see that when it was actually happening, but when they play back the film, when the, when they started getting into it a little bit, she ends up stabbing her in the neck and the, the lady bleeds out or whatever. So it's just a good movie. And then at this point, you know, your mind's fucked. Your psyche is fucked. You don't know what to believe, but now that this is the ending part and you realize that they're, being interviewed by these detectives and that they're, you know, going to prison for murder and all that. Like I said, you just feel gross and icky and that's the end of the movie. And that's Blair Witch 2. So like I said, not exactly a continuation from the first movie. And if they did try to do that, I think it would have ruined it. So I'm glad that this movie is kind of a standalone. You could watch this movie by itself without ever seeing the first one and still appreciate it for what it is. It's still going to be a horror movie to you. There's just some things that won't make sense, but they explain enough to where it could be a psychological a horror movie on its own. So yeah, that's Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. This is Just James Horror Reviews. I'm Just James. Take care. <laughs>